studying together as a church the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And we're in 1 Samuel chapter 6 today. And if you're visiting with us, let me just give a a brief summary of what's happened in the book uh, so far. In the early chapters of uh, 1 Samuel, it narrates the wars between the Philistines in, uh, and the, the Israelites. And um, in the last couple chapters, the Philistines won a decisive victory over the Israelites, and they took the Ark of the Covenant uh, captive. And the Ark of the Covenant was basically God's throne. And the Israelites had brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them like a good luck charm, and it didn't work. And so the, the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant back to their cities with them, and then all these plagues broke out in the Philistine cities. And so one city, a plague would break out, and they'd say, oh, get rid of the Ark, and they'd take it to another city, and then the plague would break out there. And it's going through the, Israel, the Philistine cities. And so at this point in the story, the Philistines are saying, how do we get rid of this thing? And that's where we're picking up in the story in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 6. We've we got a long scripture reading. We're looking at the whole chapter of uh, 1 Samuel 6 and then going in uh, to chapter 7. And so uh, you can follow along right there in your bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of God, of, of the ark of God of Israel, do not uh, send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your, uh, and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take the calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart. Put it in a box and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch. If it goes up the, the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it's he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart. And the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And stopped there, a great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord 
and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them upon uh, the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. When the, when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Eshkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines, belonged to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck... Some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the, and the people mourned because the Lord had uh, struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up, up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord, come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have a charge of the ark of the Lord from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we uh, thank you for your holy word, and we pray for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Now take these strange words and apply them to our lives uh, here, here in, in Christ Church and in Bellingham. And Lord, we open our hearts to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I have to admit that I struggled <laughs> to figure out how to write a sermon about this passage, which I usually like strange passages in the Bible because, you know, it's like figuring out how to make sense of it. And for a long time, I had a blank sheet of paper with, with uh, there were a lot of strange details in here, the golden tumors and the golden mice, which, uh, by the way, some people think is a sign that the plague that had come upon the Philistines was the bubonic plague. You know, the bubonic plague was carried around by mice and ronits and stuff like that. And maybe they recognized, oh, it's the mice that are making us, you know, making us sick. So maybe it's the, bubonic, the black plague that had come upon them. But um, as we read a passage like this in 1 Samuel 6, how does this passage apply to us in Bellingham in 2021? Well, one thing that's interesting about this passage is that the strange details that I just read to you are largely from the perspective of the Philistines. And this is actually the longest passage we have in the Bible, hearing about the Philistines talking to one another and hearing, like, how do they think? What do they talk about? What's their culture like? And, uh, and in addition, it also gives some description of the relationship between the Philistines, these neighboring uh, kind of unbelieving people with 
the God's people, the, you know, you'd say the Christians of, of their day. And, uh, and that's an important question for us as Christians. How should we think about the way that we as people who believe in Jesus, how do we relate to our neighbors who don't believe like we believe? Uh, well, to do that, I think we need some input on what the Bible says about being an unbeliever. And as we approach this passage with that question in mind, I think some really interesting insights emerge. And so that's our question today. What does the Bible say about being an unbeliever? And I'd like to give four answers to that from this passage. And this is what the four answers are. Is that first, that the unbeliever is a recipient of grace. That second, the unbeliever looks to God, uh, the unbeliever looks to God in times of crisis. That third, the unbeliever is turned away by the hypocrisy of Christians. And fourth, that the unbeliever needs to hear about Jesus. Four things we see. The unbeliever is a recipient of grace who turns to God in times of crisis, who is turned away by the hypocrisy of Christians. And so the unbeliever ultimately needs to hear about Jesus. And if you're here this morning and say, hey, by the way, I'm one of those unbelievers you're talking about. Well, we're glad you're here. And I hope there's... Uh, interesting insights from this passage for you, but I will say I think this passage has challenge both for believers and unbelievers. And I think there's comfort for believers and unbelievers in this passage. So I think it's an interesting passage for all of us, no matter where you're coming from, I think uh, God has important truths for us this morning. So four points this morning. The first is this, is that the unbeliever is a recipient of grace. The unbeliever is a recipient of grace. And this is an important thing for us as Christians to understand because there's a temptation for us to look at the world in very black and white terms, you know, in terms of good and evil and light and darkness and people who are for us and people who are against us. But the Bible tells us that there is no purely evil thing in the world because every, when God made his creation, what does it say in Genesis 1? He made everything and he looked at it and it was very good. So the only way that anything bad in the world can exist is by taking a good thing and twisting it for evil purposes. And so one implication of that for us as Christians is that all people who believe differently than we do are made in God's image and are recipients of his grace. And so even in a section like this of 1 Samuel, we might look at this and say, well, like these people are you know, really bad. Like they worship the idol Dagon and they're brutal. And you just say, there's nothing good that we could say about these people, but it's really not that simple. And I want to point out two kinds of grace that we see in the Philistines in this passage, okay? The first is that the Philistines have signs of common grace among them. The Philistines have signs of common grace. Common grace is the grace that God pours out on all people, no matter what they believe or who they are, God pours out grace on a people. The way Jesus describes common grace is he says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Your father makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So Jesus says it doesn't matter who you are, what you believe. You love God, you believe in God, it doesn't matter. God sends the sun and the rain on everyone, gives them crops, gives them families, gives them jobs, gives them food. This is God's care for all people. And often, unbelieving people throughout history have attributed these gifts of life and food and existence to the divine. So, for example, in this passage, you see what it says in verse 1, where it says, The ark of the Lord 
was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of God uh, of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. So they know that both the blessings in their life and the hardships that they experience in their life have a divine source. It comes from a spiritual place. And this religious impulse, there's a religious impulse that all people throughout history and every culture have had, uh, shows up in different places in the Bible. For example, in Ecclesiastes, it says that God has put eternity into the heart of man. There's a longing for the divine. Even in Bellingham, there might be people who say, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in the Bible. But I believe there might be a God and there's some spiritual reality that is mysterious that is happening in our world. That's the religious impulse. And actually, the Apostle Paul says something similar in the book of Acts when uh, Paul is planting churches throughout the Mediterranean and he goes to Athens and he comes to Athens and there's idols all over the place. And when uh, he starts speaking to the Athenians, what's the first thing that Paul says to them? Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He sees all this idol worship as the sense, the, the religious impulse in them, and it's a starting place for a conversation. He says, hey, listen, you're very religious. Let's talk about God. Let's talk about spirituality. There's something to build on here. God's blessing in people's lives that he has made them in his image, that he's put eternity in their hearts, he's given a sense of the divine in their hearts, and he cares for everything that they need. This is all God's common grace to them. So the unbeliever is a recipient of grace. Their life is surrounded. Their very being is held together by God's grace and kindness to them. So in this passage, we first see signs of common grace among the Philistines. But there's another kind of grace that we see in this passage. Is that they also have signs of middle grace. There's signs of middle grace. And what is middle grace? Well, uh, that's a phrase that was coined by Peter Lighthart. He's a favorite author of mine. And, uh, and, you know, common grace is God's grace that he gives to all people, that just being alive and eating and, you know, living in God's world, the days that are given to them is God's common grace. But middle grace is the blessing that comes to an unbeliever when they live in a culture that has at some point in history been influenced by Jesus and Christianity. So, for example, uh, the atheist philosopher, uh, Luke Ferry, he's a French philosopher, has said that even to this point in history, any culture that has not at some point been transformed by Jesus and the gospel and by Christianity, those cultures still tend to not understand human rights. Like, historically, that's how a culture comes to understand that every human being is, has value and worth is because they learned it from Jesus. And even if that culture eventually stops believing in Jesus, they hold on to that belief, that grace that has transformed them. And so the gospel gives a cultural knowledge about God and the value of human beings that not all cultures have. So middle grace is not something that, that all humans have. It's only people who have been in places that have been affected by the gospel. And something like middle grace has happened with the Philistines because the Philistines live in the promised lands that was given to the Israelites. They live right next to the Israelites. And you notice that they're even quoting the Bible in this passage. You see what it says there in verse 6? Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away? And they departed. 
What are they talking about there? That's the book of Exodus. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And actually in the Old Testament, the gospel is basically the Exodus. That God rescued his people out of slavery. So they had heard the gospel. They had heard the Lord is a liberator of slaves. And they had heard about his power and about his justice. They have a knowledge of the Bible. So even though they're not believers, there is a respect for the God who saved the Israelites. And so the Philistines are recipients of both common grace and middle grace. And this is not... uh, to say that they've experienced saving grace. But God's goodness has come to them in various ways. And just as anyone in our lives who may not believe the way that we believe, they have God's work, God's grace at work in their lives. God's grace has surrounded them. God's grace carries them through every, every day of their life. It is God's grace that is caring for them. And so the first thing we learn in this passage about being an unbeliever, is an unbeliever is a recipient of grace, both common grace and middle grace. The second thing we learn in this passage is that the unbeliever looks to God in times of crisis. All people look to God in times of crisis. And in this passage, these uh, Philistines who have some knowledge of God have um, their diviners develop a plan for getting rid of the Ark of the Covenant that's causing all these plagues in their cities. And if you look at verse 4, you can see their plan. It says, and they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Now, just a chapter ago, these Philistines who had stolen the Ark of the Covenant took the Ark of the Covenant and they put it next to the god Dagon and they said, oh yeah, the Lord is going to be the servant of our idol. And so they had this very kind of little view of God and now the plagues came upon them, this crisis came upon them and all of a sudden they're taking the Lord very seriously. And often that happens. Someone who says they're an atheist, when crisis comes, they start praying. Maybe they don't believe in the Lord, but they start trying to pray. Or as they say, there are no atheists in foxholes. And actually, I was listening to a song last week by uh, Regina Spector. Uh, Brandon Ellis, a member of our church, showed me the song. It's called Laughing With. And she's talking about how our culture is a post-Christian culture. And so our culture kind of thinks of the, the Bible as very backwards. And people believed in that a long time ago when they weren't very smart. And so there's kind of a, it can be a mocking tone towards believing in the Bible or be, believing in Christianity. But she says, when crisis comes, God stops being a joke. And th- this, is, this is the lyrics of the song say this. No one laughs at God in a hospital. No one laughs at God in a war. No one's laughing at God when they're starving or freezing or so very poor. No one laughs at God when the doctor calls after some routine tests. No one's laughing at God when it's gotten real late, their kid's not back from the party yet. No one laughs at God when their airplane starts to uncontrollably shake. No one's laughing at God when they see the one they love hand in hand with someone else and they hope that they're mistaken. No one's laughing at God. And the Philistines, though not devoted to the true God, are also not laughing at him in this time of crisis. 
And so what happens when someone experiences crisis in their life and they say, okay, now I'm not laughing at God. Then what happens? Well, it's mixed. There are some people that when crisis comes, they say to God, you know what, God, I don't just need your help with my cancer and your help with my marriage. I need your help with me. I have sin in my life, and my life needs to change. And a crisis can create a life change. But that's not what happens with the Philistines. So, you know, they make this plan to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant, and they put the golden tumors and the golden mice on a cart with these two cows, and they send the cows off, and they say, okay, if the cows walk by themselves back to the Israelites, then that means it was the Lord who was plaguing us, and now he's not going to plague us anymore. But if the cows turn somewhere else, then it means this was all a coincidence, and it's not really, you know, we just had a sickness going around. And uh, it turns out that the cart turns toward the Israelite town, so they know this is the Lord who is plaguing us. But then it says in verse 16, And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. And so they got rid of the crisis, they, they gave God what he wanted, and they're freed from their plagues, and now let's get back to life how it was. Let's get back to worshiping Dagon. Let's get back to being a Philistine. Uh, uh, there was no change. And actually, if I can mention another song that I love, uh, David Ramirez is a, is a favorite songwriter of mine, and he has a song called The Forgiven, and he talks about when he goes on tour, and he'll... Uh, go into these bars and he'll play for people and he says, you know, people love hearing about the brokenness of my life and, you know, the raw honesty that my troubles with women or my troubles with alcohol. But as soon as I mention any kind of redemption, they don't want to hear about it. And, uh, and the chorus of the song says this. It's from the, the perspective of the audience. It says, you're just a songwriter. You ain't a preacher. We came to mourn you, not to look in the mirror. Sing about the hard times. Sing about those women. We love the broken, not the forgiven. The people came not to look in the mirror. And uh, we as Christians, we have to appreciate how much is at stake in becoming a believer. I mean, it's hard for us it's to look honestly in the mirror and to look at ourselves and to change the deepest things that we believe about the world and who we are is a massive change. And that kind of change, you can't argue someone into that. Not, that's a change that happens at a deep place in the heart of the Holy Spirit working in someone's life. And what a relief to us that we don't have to change people. We can't change people. We couldn't change ourselves. How could we change other people? We don't have to try and change people. And so it leads the question to us then, so if we don't, it's not up to us to change people. What should we do? Well, that leads to our third point. So, so far we've seen that the unbeliever is a recipient of grace, of common grace and middle grace, and that the unbeliever often uh, turns to God in times of crisis. But that doesn't necessarily mean their lives will change. And so our third point is this, that the unbeliever is turned away by the hypocrisy of Christians. The unbeliever is turned away from God by the hypocrisy of Christians. And so when we say, what should Christians do? The main thing we should do is just live our faith out honestly. Just, you know, sincerely live how God's called us to be. You know, if God says that this is how we should live, we should do it. And maybe this goes without saying, but one question is, these Philistines lived in the promised land. They lived near the Israelites. They knew about the exodus. They'd heard the gospel. 
why did they not believe? I mean, it could be that, yeah, their hearts were hard or they're they're bad people or something like that, but they lived in the land with God's people. And what, what do we learn about God's people in this passage? Well, the Ark of the Covenant comes back to the Israelites, and it says in verse 19, look at verse 19. And the Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And you might think, wow, they, you just look at the ark and all these people died? What's the deal with that? Well, it's because the Lord had said, don't look at the ark. You're not, if it's going to be carried around, you cover it. He had told them clearly, and they did not want to do what God's word said. They were not living, doing what God said. And, uh, God's, and then uh, it says in verse 20, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And you read that statement, and you say, Wow, that sounds very God-fearing, that the Israelites say, Who can stand before God? He's so holy. But what do they say right after that? And to whom shall he go up? away from us. They're like, we want to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant too. They're not any different than the Philistines. The Philistines are like, get rid of God. We don't want to obey him and we don't want him to plague us. The Philistines are like, we don't want to obey, or the Israelites are like, we don't want to obey him and we don't want him to plague us. Get rid of God. God's people don't look any different than the people around them. And in fact, at the very end of this passage, in that last verse, Chapter 7, verse 4, we read this. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, that, uh, and they served the Lord only. So in all these chapters with these wars and all this chaos, we realize that the Israelites have been worshiping all the same gods that the surrounding people have. They've been worshiping idols. Unbelievers are turned away from God because of the hypocrisy of Christians. I mean, we've seen that in massive scale historically. So, for example, in the, uh, in the uh, 17th century, the religious wars, the Thirty Years' War in Europe, somewhere between four and eight million people were killed. And this was Christian nations fighting against each other over religious differences. And Europe basically said, if this is what religion does, is it causes you to slaughter each other, we're not going to believe in that. And if you go to Europe today and go to a church's, you know what you'll find? They're empty. It's because Christians were not living the way that God had called them to. Or even in America. You know, 100 years ago, the majority of, Christ, uh, more, majority of Americans went to church. And it was in the church that the, the churches were telling the people coming to church that the Bible isn't true. I mean, many of the mainline huge churches, the pastors believe Jesus' blood does not forgive your sins. Jesus' body was not raised from the dead. The Bible is not the inerrant word of God. And if you tell all the people that the Bible's not true, what do you expect is going to happen? Why would they come here? And there's, they haven't. And there's, Christianity has been in steep decline in American culture. Why is our culture turning away from Christianity? It's not the culture's fault. It's not the unbeliever's fault. It's our fault. Now, I just want you to hear how complex the spiritual condition is of someone who's not a believer. There are a lot of things happening in them. First, they're recipients of God's grace. God's working in them. He gives them everything they have in their life, his common grace, his middle grace. And they often look to God in times of crisis. They know no one laughs at God in a hospital room or in a war or in poverty. 
but are afraid to look at their own sin, just as we often are, to look in the mirror. And these Philistines respected God's power, but they did not want their lives to change. But we also see that the unbeliever is dealing with the very imperfect example of the Christian life from Christians themselves. And this muddies the waters for them. And so what is the only thing that can make sense of all those complicated pieces? Well, that's our final point. It's that the unbeliever needs to hear about Jesus. The unbeliever needs to hear about Jesus. And it's interesting, the biggest thing that's guiding the actions of the Philistines in this passage is their sense of guilt. They go and they ask the priests and the diviners, what should we do? And what do they say in verse 3? They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. The diviners say you need a guilt offering. And I think our culture, Christian and non-Christian, has become deeply aware of the presence of guilt and shame in our lives, that it's like a curse that can follow us into everything, into our relationships, into our families, and everything we do, and how we think, and our emotions. It, it touches everything about our lives, and our culture is constantly offering us solutions to our guilt and shame. Whether it's just how you dress, or, or how you lose weight, or how you gain more self-confidence, or how you, you know, the therapy that you could go to, or the, the psych, psychological technique that, that will help you. And what do the Philistines do to deal with their guilt and shame? Well, first they go to gurus. The priests and the diviners. And this is exactly what happens in our culture. There are millions of ways experts in our culture are telling us how to, how to feel better about ourselves and deal with our shame. But the second thing is they, they give a guilt offering. The Philistines give these golden tumors and mice. Now if the Israelites had really been worshiping God the way he had said, and the Philistines had come to them and to learn about God, what they would have learned is that the Lord doesn't want golden tumors and golden mice. He never said that. He's, he's weirded out by golden tumors and golden mice just like we are. And uh, what they would have learned is that the only thing that takes away guilt is the blood of a spotless lamb offered in the place of a sinner. That's what they would have learned from the Israelites. And these, what these unbelievers needed to hear is that God has pri provided a way to have your guilt and shame washed away. And when it is washed away, only then will you be healed. And so for all these years, the Israelites offered these perfect spotless lambs. And eventually Jesus came and he said, you know all those lambs that you've been, you've been slaughtering for your sins? They've all been pointing to me. I am the perfect spotless lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so when the Israelites to told people that spotless lambs take away sins, they were really telling them the promise of Jesus. And so the question is, is the message of Jesus the message that we as Christians are giving to the world today? This is the message that we have to tell people is that we are all broken. We are lost. And that if you have the courage to actually look in the mirror, what you will see is things that cause a deep amount of shame in your life. But God, the one who has created you, has come down in his son Jesus. And he has come to offer the perfect guilt offering, 
whose blood covers and takes away all guilt, all sin, all shame. It doesn't matter how bad it is. And, and to all extents, for every nation, for all people who have ever lived, the guilt offering that God has provided for himself. And when you come to know the power of that forgiveness that's in the perfect spotless Lamb of God, you'll not only know God's common grace, you know that he gives us food and homes and families, you'll not only know God's middle grace, that you can live in a society that values human rights and, you know, has been shaped by the gospel, you will know personally saving grace, that God has embraced you and accepted you and to have peace with him and to be loved by him and to be embraced by him. And so then you don't only turn to him in times of crisis, but you will find Jesus says, if you're my disciple, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, and I'll pour my spirit. I will live inside of you. I will be close to you. And when that happens to you, you realize, of course, there are hypocritical Christians in the world. My hope isn't in them. My hope is in the only man who has ever had perfect integrity and perfect honesty, Jesus Christ, the sinless one. And my hope is not in them. My hope is in him. And that's what not only the unbeliever needs to hear, that's what we need to hear, is that God has sent the perfect guilt offering so that we could have peace with him. And so today as we uh, turn uh, to 1 Samuel 6, a strange passage, it's a strange passage that's sending us to the Savior to say, Lord Jesus, you are all I need, and I believe in you, and I rest in you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you know that all of us struggle with unbelief in our hearts, whether we are Christians or not Christians. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak by the power of your Holy Spirit deep to our hearts that there is an offering that covers our guilt and our shame. There is an offering that doesn't send you far away from us, but an offering that brings you near and embraces us. And so uh, we uh, uh, pray that we could know uh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. I pray for each soul present here, that they would know the love of Jesus, the peace, the joy, to walk with you. And so, Lord, uh, draw us. We know it's a work that you must do in our hearts, and so we open our hearts to you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.